We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was senior minister. Well, can you think which verse I'm going to start with tonight? Colossians 1 verse 13 talks about us being freed. For he, that is God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It talks about us in terms of being captives, being in the dominion of darkness, and having been rescued from that dominion, rescued or redeemed like slaves purchased from their slavery. We have been freed out of the captivity into which we were. That idea of being rescued from captivity is the very nature of what it is to be a Christian. I was at one stage in captivity, as it says, to the domain of darkness, the dominion of darkness, and now have been not only rescued from it, but transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. There is the idea of the forgiveness of sins, because that is how I have been rescued out of darkness, by my sins being forgiven and being brought into this kingdom of God's Son. Now, tonight, we look at the passage which gives us a great warning not to fall into captivity again. Verse 8, see, of chapter 2 that is, see to it that no one takes you captive, that no one kidnaps you, that no one steals you again. Now, there are lots of these captivities of which we could speak. There can be the captivity of returning back into the dominion of darkness, which in some extent we will be speaking of tonight, in terms of rejecting the forgiveness that Christ has won for us, that in part is what we'll be talking about tonight, but we can do it in several different ways. We can do it as most Australian pagans will do it. Most Australians seem to, to go by the way of finding alternative gods in marriage or in success or something like that. And so there is the great danger that we could speak of for the Christian to turn aside from Christ for the sake of the unbelieving partner to turn aside from Christ for the sake of success in the business world, of being able to afford your, your Paddington Terrace to which you're going to grout out the fireplace for the rest of eternity. You can, you can see that kind of movement away from God for other things of this world, but that's not the kind of captivity that Paul has in mind in Colossians. Rather, it is the religious captivity that he is warning us against, the religious alternatives which will take us captive away from Christ and, in fact, back to the captivity from which he has rescued us. Make sure that no one takes you a captive. It's a great danger for Christians. For those who have received Christ, Jesus as Lord, I couldn't keep away from it long, verse 6 of chapter 2, those who have received Christ Jesus as Lord are to continue on, are to go on to maturity in Christ. That is what the Christians need to be doing. We have a cat in the house. 
I understand that next door we have half a dozen cats living and here we go on one. This is going to be a fascinating exercise to see if we can all stay calm so as not to scare the wits out of the cat given the fact that Col is chasing it. That's enough to... Uh, no, sorry. I'm, it will go and you'll see where it is by the wriggles in the congregation as people move around here. Good. We, uh, how far have we got that, that lovely animal? Uh, Max has got control of it. Now, do you know what verse I'm going to start on tonight? <laughs> it's here somewhere. Just a minute while I get myself back here. Yes, having received Christ Jesus as Lord, we're to go on in Christ Jesus. We're to go on to maturity. And Paul rejoices in chapter 2, verse 5, that he has seen how orderly they are. He has heard how orderly they are, how firm they are in Christ Jesus. But yet, he wants to warn them in verse 8 of chapter 2. He wants them to go on, but not to go on in the wrong direction, not to wander off, not to be taken off, captured. You see, we keep on thinking we live in a moral neutrality, in a spiritual neutrality, where we make the choice to go one way or another way. We do not like to perceive ourselves as living in spiritual realms, where in fact we are taken captive by forces and powers that are greater than us. We don't like thinking of ourselves like that because that will somehow mean that I am less than the captain of my soul. I am less than the master of my own ship. That I can make the choice to take or reject Christ just as I like because after all I'm God and Christ isn't. But if Christ is God and I'm not, then the powers and principalities that are at work of which I am part, I am caught up, well, my decisions are not irrelevant, my decisions are not unimportant, my responsibility is there, but mine is not the total responsibility. There are forces at work that would lead me astray, that would take me captive. God has mercifully released me, mercifully rescued me. I didn't rescue myself, I didn't release myself. I've actually been rescued by somebody else, namely God, through the death of Jesus. I have been rescued but now I must make sure that I don't sell myself into captivity again, that I don't get caught again. And how? It's by adding something to my rescuer. It is by adding something to Christ. It is by accepting Christ, receiving Christ, and then going on not in Christ, but going on in a completely different way, in adding something to Christ. It's the great danger Colossians writes against is the gospel plus. That is the great danger he is warning us of. Just as you received Christ, continue to live in him. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceitful philosophy which depends on human traditions and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. It's the opposite, you see, of continuing in him. It is the basing your life on things that are not Christ. Chapter 2, verse 8, rather than on Christ. It's losing connection with the head. Chapter 2, verse 19. It's an interesting verse in terms of the contrast, the opposite of continuing, 2.19. He, that is the person who's so built their life that's added on to Christ, he has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. The church, God's people, the body of Christ grows. It grows towards godliness. It grows in numbers. It grows in its own spirituality. It grows to maturity. 
How does it grow? It grows by the power of God at work in us. But God's power works in us through Christ. If you lose connection with Christ, then there is no growth that is Christian. We are to grow, chapter 2, verse 7, rooted and built up in him. We're to grow in him as a tree grows from its foundations, but we're not to grow away from him. To grow away from him is, of course, disastrous. That is, we don't want stunted Christians permanently in their spiritual nappies. But at the same time, we don't want wandering Christians caught as they move away from Christ. You see, it's a very serious error of which we're speaking tonight. Captivity, being kidnapped, being caught again, being actually lost connection with our head, very serious state to be in. An extraordinary warning and severe warning because of the seriousness of what's happening. But if you move from Christ, adding on to him, you'll fall back into captivity, which is a captivity that is hollow and deceptive. It'll promise you great freedom, but it will give you awful bondage. It is hollow and deceptive. There is a modern sentimentality abroad, which comes in part from a good thing called tolerance, a modern sentimentality which says that all religions really are just as good as each other, all different truths are different ways, all spiritual experiences that you can discover that all lead you in different ways. You get it through the ABC Religious Affairs Department all the time, show after show, where provided you've got a spiritual experience, a spiritual pilgrimage, then you're all right. But there is the, there is the supernaturalists, and provided you're on the supernaturalist wavelength, then you're all right. But that is not how the Bible views it at all, and in fact, it's a very silly, stupid idea. Because not all supernaturalism is right. You cannot really say the occult is acceptable to Christians, or Christianity to the occult. The two are in opposition to each other. One worships God, the other worships the devil. They are in complete opposition to each other. That is calling black white and white black when you say that it doesn't matter what you worship provided you worship something that all roads lead to God is not true. Most of the roads lead to hell. They don't lead to God. And we mustn't go on with this nonsense of saying, well, provided you pray, then that's what really counts. Provided you meditate, that's all right. Provided you have the experience of the divine, that's all right. Because it depends who is the divine that you are experiencing. What is the supernatural that is at work in your life? You see, it really is the nonsense of relativism. To the Muslim, Jesus did not die. He certainly didn't rise again. He wasn't even crucified. To the Christian, Jesus did die and rise again. And it's not really kind of incidental trivia around the trimming edge of Christianity. It's at the very heart of what Christianity is about. I mean, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, says Paul, our faith is in vain and we are most of all to be pitied, of all men to be pitied, because everything we believe is now unbelievable. It's untrue. It's, it's a nonsense resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that he died, that he rose again, is absolutely central to Christianity. And Islam says it is not true. Now, they both can't be right. If Jesus did die and rise again, then Islam's wrong. If Jesus did not die and rise again, then Christianity's wrong. They both can't be right. They both could be wrong. Jesus may never have lived. They both could be wrong, but they both can't be right. That's a nonsense. That puts you really into a degree of fantasy world, doesn't it? 
It's, it's like the Flat Earth Society. I'm a great believer in the Flat Earth Society's right to exist. Oh, I'm glad that some are. It's very important they have the right to exist. It's very important they have the right to speak and to teach and to raise questions for those of us who belong to the Round Earth Society. Because if we don't allow them to ask questions like that, then we may never actually discover that the Earth is flat. We may be like the people who in previous generations believed it was flat and wouldn't have let the Round Earth Society preach and teach and ask questions and so kept the society believing in a flat Earth for centuries because they wouldn't allow the questions to be asked, the point of view to be argued. No, no, we must have the Flat Earth Society. But just because I believe that there's a right for the Flat Earth Society to exist does not mean that I think for a moment that what they're saying is true. Nor do I think for a moment that the Earth is flat for them and round for me. That is really a fantasy existence, isn't it? They're right or I'm right. If I'm right, they're wrong. If they're right, I'm wrong. We both could be wrong. It could be a prism. <laughs> There's all kinds of other possibilities, aren't there? We both could be wrong, but we both can't be right. Because by the very nature and definition of it, if it's flat, it's not round. If it's round, it's not flat. The very nature of the meaning of the words. If Jesus didn't die, then Christianity is wrong. If he did die, then Islam is wrong then all religions don't lead to God, do they? Because they're not all leading to the truth. We may accept the right for the religions to exist without burning each other at the stake. In fact, as one who would be a prime candidate for burning, I'm all for the tolerance which says let's not burn people we disagree with. All for it. But saying I don't want to burn people at the stake is very, very different to saying that we're all saying the same thing, that we all believe the same thing, that it doesn't matter what you believe, that it's all kind of that same... That's not true, and it cannot be true. You see, the devil is the father of all lies. He is a liar from the beginning, and it's of his very nature to lie. And he wishes to deceive people. It is the character of him. And there is almost no captivity you can fall into that is worse than believing a lie. For as you believe lies, you so build a web of existence around the lies that you believe in. Every other piece of information then gets modified and shaped to fit into that fundamental lie that you believe in. There is the terrible imprisonment of people and the devil is the master of lies and deceit and his aim and goal is to deceive, is to distort the truth so as to get people to believe the lie. Now having received Christ Jesus as Lord, the great temptation is to believe there's something in addition to Jesus which is a lie. That we can somehow have God without Jesus, which is a lie. It cannot be so. Some time ago we had a year of peace. I don't know when that was, last year, year before. You, the years roll on, the years of this and the years of that. I'm waiting for the, three, the year of the three-legged bandicoot. I mean, we, we, we have them for all. They make no difference to anybody. I don't remember that last year, if the year was the year of peace, I don't remember it was any more peaceful than any other year, was it? I mean, it just kind of... So I can't see what difference it makes whether we have the year ofs, but it gives us grounds for putting out stamps, I suppose, which is better than Father Christmas stamps and is a relief from the Queen's head. Anyway, in the year of peace, we were asked to participate in a community peace service 
right? a religious peace service where the local politicians encouraged us to get all the religions together and would have an open-air peace rally that would be religious and they wrote up a church kind of service, a religious service, which we could all agree upon saying. Well, of course, you can imagine what it said. Absolutely nothing. Right? Whatever word it used, it used so as to make sure that it could mean everything to everybody and nothing to anybody. That was the very character of it. But of course, one of the key elements that left out all the time was Jesus. You can't have a religious service of peace involving all the religions of the world and use Jesus. You can use the word God. That is possible. The Buddhists will accept it knowing that we're weak-minded people. But the, the other religions will take on God provided you don't define who he is too carefully. But you cannot mention Jesus, can you? Because as soon as you mention Jesus, then you've lost a whole group of people. But of course, we couldn't participate in it without mentioning Jesus. For Jesus is the Prince of Peace. How can we have a peace service without the Prince of Peace invited? It's not on, is it? And they think, you see, you can have God without Jesus, which just totally misunderstands what Christianity is about. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2, verse 8, verse 9. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Deity is another word for God, or adjectival form there. Whatever is God, whatever you want to call God to be God, whatever deity is, it, whatever deity is lived bodily in him. All the fullness of deity lived in him. And we, the consequence that flows from it, verse 10, and we and you have been given fullness in Christ. Everything that is God is in this person and as you come to be in this person, you get everything that you could ever have. It's the McDonald's verse. We've got it all. If you've got it all, there's nowhere else you can go and pick up anything else. Everything that is God is in that one. How can you then have a service about God and leave him out? If verse 9 is true, then that kind of relativistic tolerance is an impossibility. But the great danger is that people want to add on to him. I'll give you another example of that kind of relativism. The Masonic Lodge is the same kind of deal, isn't it? Where we have God called the great architect in the sky. We have the, uh, the great architect. We have the, the volume of the sacred law. But in every country where the lodge meets, the volume of the sacred law differs. So if it's a Jewish lodge, it's only the Old Testament. If it's an Islamic lodge, then it's only the Quran. If it's a Hindu lodge, then it'll be something like the Upanishads. But it's all called the volume of the sacred law and the, the ritual is exactly the same. What's it saying? Some of the prayers of the Masonic lodge are based directly on the prayer book of the Church of England. They are word for word the same. The opening collect of the, uh, of the Lord's Supper of the 1662 prayer book is indeed one of the chief prayers of the Masonic Lodge, except for two words, Jesus Christ. I mean, at that point, you can see what they're saying. We can pray to God, we can believe and want the same things that Christians want, but we just leave Jesus out. You can't have that. All the fullness of deity lived in him. And we come to fullness outside of, not outside of, we come to fullness in him. For he is the one in whom all God dwells. You see the problem? Now those two forms are gospel minus forms of captivity. 
those two forms want to take us away from Christ in a minusing fashion really, leave Christ out or generalise God so that it's not God that is actually Christ. But each of the forms of religious each of the forms of religious captivity are a leading away from Christ. Most of them are more seductive than that. Masonry has been very seductive over the centuries, I may say, dreadfully seductive, and I know I've already trodden on some toes tonight because there'll be members of the lodge amongst us, and I've trodden on even more toes because there'll be children of the members of the lodge here in great numbers, no doubt. It's very seductive because it is so magnificently religious. It's so Christianised in its religion but it always actually keeps people away from understanding Christ in his unique lordship, in his divinity. And so it puts shutters on the eyes of people so they won't hear the gospel. It's a dreadful, dreadful deception that has captivated our land for centuries. But the ones that you and I are more likely to face up to now are the ones like the ones in Colossians, the gospel plus ones. The people who want to say, yes, we believe in Christ too. You believe in Christ, we believe in Christ, that's fantastic, we're together. No, no, we're not like the people who want to leave Christ out. We want Christ in. Mind you, have you heard about this and this and that and this and have you experienced this as well and that and this? And you say, well, it can't be too bad because they believe in Christ just like I believe in Christ. Just like I believe in Christ? If all the fullness of God dwells in him, and you have come to fullness in him, what's this extra bit? How can you have an extra to fullness? If you've come to fullness, there's no more to come to. What plus can there be over and above fullness? Indeed, if you want to put something on top of Jesus, you don't believe in the same Jesus I believe in. You may be saying the word Jesus, you may be saying the word Christ, you may be saying the word Lord, but we've got a different product. Same label, different product. Because if you can add anything to Christ, then it's not the Christ I believe in. Because the Christ I believe in is the one in whom the whole fullness of God dwelt bodily. He is the one to whom I come to complete fullness in him. Can't add on to him. Oh, I can grow as a Christian. In fact, I must grow as a Christian. But how do I grow? I grow in him. That's the only way I can grow. I can't grow any other way. I can't grow in addition to him. That's not on. Now, that's the point that is being born into us in, verses, in the rest of chapter 2. Paul describes the, the alternatives, not the alterations, but the alternatives, in your points there. And number two actually is not hollow, but hollow. Hollow. I'd like to say it was my bad writing, but actually I dictated it. It's my bad speech. Hollow and alternatives. Paul describes these alternatives as being hollow and deceptive and human-based. That is, they are hollow in the sense that they are vain and futile and empty. They promise substance, but they give nothing. They have fine-sounding words, but they're actually the deception. They promise freedom and give bondage. They promise reality and at best only give the shadow of reality. They promise self-control, but they actually do not achieve it. So you and I as Christians live in a world which is still fallen and you and I live in a nature that is still fallen. 
Oh, we've been born again by the Spirit of God if we've received Christ Jesus. Oh, God is making us new, but he hasn't finished with us yet. Our neighbours are glad to hear he hasn't finished with us yet, and when we look in the mirror, we're glad that he hasn't finished with us yet because we've still got a fair way to go. Now, when someone comes along to us and says, hey, you've got a fair way to go, you think, yeah, well, I have really got a fair way to go. I've got a new way to show you how, to, how you can get there faster. Well, anything that's faster and newer, bigger and brighter, cheaper, I mean, must be right, mustn't it? We'll go for anything that's new, anything that's fast. The, I mean, I always hate having to learn things slowly. I keep telling you about my prayer for patience, which God is so slow in answering that I'm becoming very impatient about keeping on praying it. I want patience now, and I want humility without ever being humbled. Now, you see, the idea of long endurance, of struggle, of gradually getting there, it's a terrible pain. I want instant transformation. Now, God will give that to us in our death. That's not always what I'm wanting when I'm asking for instant transformation. I generally want instant transformation here and now that I can go on living with here and now. And so when someone comes along and promises it to me, if you did it this way, if you did it that way, if you grew this way, if you grew that way very attractive to me because I'm battling because I want to be more godly than I am and I'm not more godly than I am and so if someone can show me a quick technique to godliness well I'm a sucker for it aren't I because I want that as you say you've got to you become a Christian that's great news you've got Jesus Christ as Lord that's tremendous now let's show you the real way and there's the danger you see how easily I can be suckered into it because if Christ is two years then what they're offering me is a lie. There cannot be anything additional to Christ. There cannot be anything extra to Christ. There cannot be another way to God than Christ. Can't be. Where's Christ at the moment? He's sitting at the right hand of God in all power and authority. Where are you? If you're a Christian, you're in Christ. So where are you? Right next to God. Now, how can you get any closer to God than that? You can't. If Christ is who he claims to be and has done what he claims to have done, then you are right now in the presence of God. How can you get any closer? You can't. You say, well, I don't feel very close to God. So, okay, well, your feelings need to catch up with the reality, but the reality is you're there. He said, well, look, if I did this course or that course, then I would feel closer to God. You may feel closer to God, but you may have actually got further away. Because if you've added to Christ Jesus, you haven't got any closer, you've got further away. How can you get closer than being at the right hand of God? And that is where you are if you're in Christ Jesus. You can't get any closer than that. Now, well, this is a real letdown. I thought when I became a Christian, I would just have the tingling sensation of God all over me all the day. Well, I'm sorry, you've got such silly thoughts about Christianity. That's not the way it is. The way it is is in this lifetime, you continue in the same struggle and, and effort that all people are called to in a fallen world. That's the way it is. Not until Christ returns or until your death will you be there eyeball to eyeball, physically seeing him in that sense. This lifetime, pain and sorrow and tears and long-term struggle. That's the character of it. He gives a series of examples of the kinds of ways in which we get captivated by religion, 
captivated away from Christ with the kinds of nonsense that are there. These are the kinds of things which come from, as he describes them, human tradition, the basic principles of this world, deceptive philosophy. Not all philosophy is deceptive. Don't go down that silly track of burying your mind in, in Christianity. Philosophy is not itself deceptive. But there is deceptive philosophy. That's quite possible, isn't it? And that which builds on human traditions and on the basic views of this world are deceptive. That is, there is a way of thinking about God which comes from our humanity, and it's wrong. The only way in which you can know about God is comes from God's divinity, comes from God himself. Many of you, many times, have heard about my sister. So I won't label my, laden you with my sister yet again. The principle of it is very clear, though. You cannot know her unless she reveals herself to you. You see, there are newcomers here, there are strangers here, as I look down through the gloom of these dreadful lights that I'm sometimes under. I look down, I can see the faces. There are faces of people here I don't know. Now, I can stand here for a long time staring at you as long as you care to sit there staring back at me. And at the end of an hour or two or a day or two or a week or two, I still won't know anything about you except you're incredibly patient or have died recently. <laughs> I cannot from here determine what you are like. I do not know you from my platform of thought. can't know you. You can only know a person by that person coming and speaking to you. See, you're getting to know me bit by bit, phrase by phrase, the mannerisms, the character, the attitudes, the values. They start to, tip, even when I don't mean them to come out, they start to come out, don't they? And so you start to get to know me and you can walk away and say, oh, well, I know Philip Jensen. I've, I've, I've seen him, I've met him, I understand him, I know what kind of person he is. But I don't, know, don't even know your name. Mind you, when you've filled out the card and put it in the box and we've caught up with you and met you and got you talking about yourselves, that's how we can get to know you. We can't welcome in a newcomer who doesn't want to be welcomed in. We can't welcome in someone who wants to sit in anonymity. You want to sit in anonymity? Then you will stay there forever. We can't know anybody who wants to be anonymous. We can only know the person who wants to reveal themselves to us. Please do that, won't you? Because we love to have your fellowship. We love to know you. But it takes you to tell us about yourself. Likewise, you see, I can sit here trying to think up God. I can sit here till the cows come home. I won't know any more about God. It is only as God speaks to me or to this world that this world or I can know God. And so those philosophies, those traditions, those elemental principles, as Paul calls them, which are based upon human perception and reasoning about God are in fact always wrong. It's God who speaks to us in Christ Jesus. It is when God became man in Christ Jesus that we can know God. It's fascinating really, isn't it? That the, the philosophy of religion courses that are run at most universities are really the philosophies of irreligion. And really, they, they go hand in hand with the, the ABC department of irreligion. You, you see, it's very interesting because they'll never discuss Jesus. It's fascinating. I've called in the course down New South Wales University on and off over the years. Haven't been for a couple of years now. They must slightly changed it. I have to call in again and have a look at it. But they'll discuss God till the cows come home. But they'll never discuss Jesus, who is the person who was God. 
who is where God revealed himself. It is where God spoke. I can talk about God because as long as I'm talking about God, I'm talking from the human viewpoint about that which is unknown and unknowable. It's like thinking up Mr. Smith and saying, what do you think Mr. Smith is like? And someone says, well, I'm not even sure there is a Mr. Smith. You know, well, that's a good question. Maybe there isn't a Mr. Smith. I mean, has anybody ever met this Mr. Smith? No, I haven't met this Mr. Smith. You met Mr. No, no. Well, we're all agreed Mr. Smith hasn't been met. Well, we can put that down anyway. I don't know. Is it possible to meet a Mr. Smith? And we go on and on and always searching, never finding, because that would ruin our whole academic progress. I mean, it's fundamental that philosophy is in the arts faculty because it's crucial that you can never find an answer. If you haven't found an answer, then you'd be an engineer. Well, no one wants to be one of those, so we keep it in the arts faculty where philosophy is quite... You go around and around and around and around, you see, nowheresville, because they're not willing to face what is fundamentally obvious to anybody who reflects upon it, that you can't know a person if the person doesn't tell you about themselves. And you can only know the person when the person does tell them about And the God of the Bible is personal. And so if we're going to meet the God of the Bible, then that God has to reveal himself to us. And so if we wanted to find out about him, then we must look where he reveals himself. Or where does he reveal himself? Verse 9, chapter 2. Very important verse, isn't it? They're all important, Colossians. In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. That's where we come to fullness in him. And so we mustn't be taken captive by anything that is a philosophy, a thought, a tradition that comes from us that's deceptive and hollow it'll promise great things but offer nothing in the end well what are some of the examples circumcision is listed there in chapter 2 verse 11 the external right of belonging to the people of israel the covenant sign from the old testament in one sense there's no moral modern parallel because judaism is unique but in another sense that kind of feeling that by circumcision i'll be all right that circumcision is the label that will save me that will put me right with god is found in nearly all religious circumstances. People think that because they've been baptised or they've been confirmed or they belong to the Church of England or the Presbyterians or the Orthodox or the Catholic or whatever it may be, that God will somehow deeply and profoundly be impressed by them and say, they're okay with me. I mean, those who belong to the Church of England are sure that God is an Englishman who created the world at nine o'clock in the morning as any good Englishman would start work. And so if you pile up there and you say, well, God, I really was a member of the Church of England, he will say, that's very good, doffing his bowler at you and inviting you in. It's all part of that kind of nonsense that God must be a member of my club. I mean, I'm a member of it. I'm sure he would if he was down here. And so, because, no, no, the circumstances that the Israelite had this, we are God's chosen people. Therefore, if we're God's chosen people, that's all we need to be, really. And there's a great pride in being God's chosen people, great, much greater ground for believing in it, of course, than believing in the Church of England. Much greater ground. And they thought that just because they were the children of Abraham that God would be impressed with them. And John the Baptist it was who says, have I got John the Baptist? It's Jesus. It's John the Baptist that God can raise up from the the stones children to Abraham. Don't think that just because you're a child of Abraham that God's going to be impressed with you. Don't think because you're being baptised that God is going to be impressed by you. That's a terrible thing, but it's funny. People believe it. They actually think they're Christians because when they were babies, their parents took them along for a sprinkling. They really think that has made them now permanently Christian. I was chatting with this lovely fellow the other day about becoming a Christian. I think he's very close to becoming a Christian if he hasn't become one already. And I said, 
are you a Christian or have you been a Christian? He said, well, I'm not sure. He says, I don't think I am, but I've always thought that I was. I said, well, what made you think that you, you were a Christian? He said, of course, I was baptised. I said, when as a baby? He said, yes. And I said, well, because of what your parents did to you as a baby, you think that you're a Christian? He said, yes. He said, well, I said, are you? He said, no. <laughs> it's nonsense, isn't it? How could what that happened possibly really be what's making you a Christian. I understand Adolf Hitler was baptised as a baby. It hardly makes him a Christian. It might tell you something about the parents, but it tells you nothing about the child, does it? Not necessarily. Yeah, I've had all my children baptised. But that's another story. In and of itself, it doesn't make a person a Christian. All we need to do is stand outside the maternity wings with water pistols, and as they came out, pew, pew, we could have a, get them all in. Long base full of baptised people. But it's not just that, you see, some people, of course, it's not just a baby one, because those of you who come from adult Baptist backgrounds now think, yeah, 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 you're right. But you've got the same problem there, haven't you? That people really think, they say, you become a Christian, that's marvellous, but have you been baptised? They say, oh, oh, as a baby I was done. I say, no, 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 that, that, that's a christening. That's not a baptism. Uh, which is a nonsense, but never mind. That's a christening, not a baptism. Have you been baptised by full immersion as an adult? And you say, well, I don't know how much water they used when I was a baby, but I certainly haven't had it as an adult. I say, oh, well, are you really a Christian then? Can you be sure you really are a Christian if you haven't been baptised as an adult by full immersion? By someone else who has been baptised as an adult by full immersion? Got to be done the right way, or you mightn't be a Christian at all. I mean, you're not really living in obedience to God. You think, oh, Philip, people don't say that, they do. There's a group of uh, missionaries come from uh, another country onto our campus for six weeks and they are teaching and preaching around our campus that you are justified by faith in Christ plus baptism. And if you are not baptised, then you are not right with God. And by baptism, they mean by full immersion as adults. So you've got Christ, that's great, but have you got the right kind of label and the right kind of membership to the right kind of club? Because if you haven't, that's not good enough. See how they can add on to Christ? But if that's true, then you don't come to fullness in Christ, do you? See the problem? Gospel plus. Now, if you chat to them and ask them about whether they believe in Jesus, yes. Do they believe Jesus is Lord? Yes. Do they believe he's the Christ? Yes. They believe all those kinds of things and you think, well, they're Christians like I am. I'll join them in going around doing their evangelistic work. I'll join up with their club. And they say, by the way, have you been baptised? Oh, no, I haven't. Well, it's very important. But you've accepted them as Christians because you haven't realised they are adding on. See how seductive it is, how deceptive it is. They didn't say to you, you're wrong about Jesus. They said, you're right about Jesus. But they were wrong about Jesus because they haven't taken seriously 2.9. Or again, festivals back to verse 16 of chapter 2. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. See, people mustn't pass judgments on these things. Every religion goes in for religious observances of festivals, of fast days and feast days, of Lenten fastings and Ramadan, of Christmas and Saints days, of Sabbatarianism, of red letter days, high days, low days, of black letter days, of first Friday of the month days, and all kinds of things that go on. You know, the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Church and the, the Western Church split over the subject of which day we should be celebrating Easter. The very date of Easter is a fundamental split in Christianity if it matters. It doesn't matter if we never celebrate Easter ever again. If we drop Easter out of the calendar, it wouldn't matter. 
Because what is important is that Jesus died and rose again, not which day we're going to remember it. That's a trifling inconsequence. And yet, the whole Catholic tradition, the whole Orthodox tradition can't agree about which way to organise Easter holidays. Once every four years, this year in fact, it comes together on the same weekend. Every other weekend, the Greeks and the Russians, they have Easter a different day to those around who come from a Western tradition. But it's very important, you see. I can't have fellowship with you as a Christian. You have Easter on the wrong day. Incredible nonsense. Looks religious, you see, to go in with these days. Ash Wednesday and St Cyprian's Day and not religious it's just show it's just hollow it's nothing sabbatarianism is the same we had a fellow come here one night to church very upset with us because we used the wrong kind of bread for communion we didn't use wafers we used bread uh, i never even really noticed i just put it in the mouth i'm thinking about jesus at the time however he's worried about the kind of bread we're using and then he was all upset because it wasn't on the saturday we were meeting well he didn't have to come but he came it wasn't on saturday crucial so I got talking to him about his faith and the rest of it and his faith had really gone downhill since he'd walked, run out and his wife with another woman. Here he is worried about which day of the week we meet to eat unleavened bread while deserting his wife in adultery. You see the problem? See the perspective? Jesus puts it in terms of a very lovely picture he uses, it always amuses me, but, uh, of the Pharisees who strain out the gnat the insect, the, 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 uh, the mosquito, and swallow the camel. It's that kind of character, isn't it? That's the kind of picture that rightly captures that kind of religious claptrap that people go on with. Don't let people pass judgments over you. Now, if you're a Christian, you are bound to come across these people after a little while and say to you, well, why do you celebrate the Sabbath on the wrong day? As if it matters. Which day? If it's really crucial to you, come and join the university church. We meet on Friday nights after sundown, which of course is the Jewish Sabbath. <laughs> I mean, it's a real nonsense. Do you think for a moment that the people who meet on Friday night are any closer to God than you? No, of course not. Because how do you get close to God? By getting together on the right day of the week? You think God only is open for business one day a week. What a nonsense that is. You don't get closer to God by being on the right day of the week. You get closer to God in your heart, faith in Jesus. It's in Jesus that you get to God. Not which day of the week you happen to meet together to study the Bible. For many people, it's crucial. What they've got, you see, is the shadow of reality it's part of the old testament law the sabbath law and verse 17 these things are a shadow of the reality they are there they're in the law even of god but remember the whole law of god is a shadow of the reality they didn't have photography in those days and i think that that's what they'd use that it's a it's a photograph an old photograph of the reality that's to come once you've got the reality the photograph you put away you've got a photograph of your loved one You've got your loved one. Which are you more interested in? The photo of her, him, or her or him? I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Now, before you met her, I'll push the illustration into the slightly strange, before you met her, someone gives you a photograph. This is the girl you're going to marry. So you've got this photograph of this girl, and you go around the countryside looking for anybody who can match up 
with this photograph. Because that's, that's the one you've been told that you're to marry. Now that's what the Old Testament law was like. God was saying this is what the ultimate reality will look like. And so when Christ comes, he must mesh in, he must look like that which is the shadow of the reality. But once you meet the girl, what do you do? So, well, now I've seen her, I'm going to take the photograph home and I'm going to marry the photograph. I'm going to get in the bed of the photograph. I'm going to... Hardly, once you've got the reality, the photograph is then put in the back burner, isn't it? Put away in the album somewhere to be opened and looked at and laughed at later. But it's really, it's no longer the thing that governs your life about because you've got the reality. Now, I'm not saying the Old Testament is something to put in the back burner and laugh at. I'm saying it helps us understand the reality, but it's not the reality. The Sabbath was there for a purpose, to teach us about heaven. If you've got heaven, you don't need Sabbath observances anymore. Likewise, the rules and judgments that people want to pay. Religions love rules, especially rules about eating and drinking and about which days you're going to meet on. Well, there's the rules there in verse 16, people passing judgment on each other. Or verse 20, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch all about things that are doomed to perish as they used. See, religions love them. The Hari Christians won't eat meat. They'll always only eat vegetables. The, the Lenten fasts, or the, the Friday no meat on Friday rules, the, the Islamic rules about no alcohol, the, the countercultural religious rules about only having brown rice, brown bread, brown sugar, as, well, raw sugar anyways, if those things somehow make you more religious and more holy or, or not having tea and coffee because of its wicked, 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 wicked caffeine that is really just destroying your whole life because it's taking you away from God. There's any number of religious laws about that. I understand Adolf Hitler was a vegetarian who drank neither tea nor coffee, but I don't think it got him any closer to God. What goes into your stomach goes down the toilet. It doesn't bring you to God never meant to do that it never does do that and if your religion is based upon what you eat your religion is in the sewer it's got nothing to do with God you don't reach God through the sewer you reach God in Christ Jesus that is the only place you reach God for the whole fullness of God is found in him therefore don't let people pass judgment on what you eat what you drink that's an irrelevance Eat what you want to, drink what you want to. There are some things good for your health, there are some things bad for your health. There are some things that are excellent for your health and they taste lousy. Whatever you want to eat, eat with thankfulness into your heart for the God who has created the good things of this world for you to enjoy. But you see, when you, when you can eat only vegetarian food, special food that's been blessed and all that kind of thing, it looks so religious look so holy to have this very meagre diet, to go on these long fasts, to do without food for three days, four days, five days, a week. It looks like you're a person of enormous spirituality. It's not really. It's a person with an enormous appetite. <laughs> That's all you are. And if you keep going long enough, you'll be a person with strange delusions running around in your head as well. Thanks you no closer to God. God has created the good food of this universe for us to enjoy. How then can you get closer to God by not using the good gifts he's given to us to enjoy? It's a nonsense. You see, don't believe that God is the creator of the universe. That's what's happened. You've lost touch with Christ, who is the Lord of creation. No, no, eat what you want. Drink what you want. 
refrain from eating and refrain from drinking just as you want but don't make any rules about it. Don't make any regulations. Don't let anyone rule over you and don't rule over anybody else. It's a matter of complete liberty and freedom. The kingdom of God is not what you eat or drink. Romans chapter 14 verse 17 is a useful verse for you in that regard. 14, 17. the worship of angels that's mentioned in verse 18 or the harsh treatment of the body which is uh, mentioned there in verse 22. No, such regulations do not handle, do not touch. These are all destined to perish, 22, with use because they are based on human commands and teaching. Such regulations have indeed an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body. But notice what they are. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They don't actually make any difference at all. Not to your spirituality. They look, all the bowing and the scraping and the flogging of the body and the hair shirts and the the hours of mesmeric trance-like singing and chanting and, and the twisting and distorting of the bodies up into this position and that position, lying prostrate, upside down, inside out and back to front. It really doesn't bring you any closer to God. It can't bring you any closer to God. It doesn't bring you any closer to God because you can't get any closer than Christ. So how by sitting in a lotus leaf are you going to get closer to Christ? You don't. You just get cramps and all kinds of other things but you won't get closer to God. It can't do it. Fasting and meditation, it always looks so religious. It looks so, so out of this world because it is. It's in fantasy land. It's a self-imposed bondage but it's not of God. Never has been and it never will be. And it doesn't ultimately achieve self-control because I can go through all those exercises and still be greedy and still be envious and still hate my neighbour and still be adulterous. I cannot, by all those meditations, by all those worships, by all those manipulation of the body and all the rest of it, I cannot actually remove sin from my heart by any of those things. It doesn't work. I get freed from the domain of darkness by the death of Jesus on my behalf, paying for it, not by me somehow using some magical, mystical, religious excision Or again, there are those who base their religion, verse 18, on what they have seen, as the NIV translates it, on visions, as the RSV, I think, more accurately has translated it. The fasting, the worshipping, the severity of the body and and the, 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 the visions all go hand in hand. There is a great plethora of vision taking around our society at the moment. But of course, visions are also not the way to God. You do not base your faith, I trust, on visions but upon Jesus Christ and his word. God did not come to man in a vision, he came to man as a man. The word of life, which was from the beginning, we could taste, we could touch, we could handle, we could see, we could smell. We heard him, he lived amongst us and we saw his glory. He wasn't a vision when he rose from the dead. He said, bring some fish, see I am not a ghost and he ate the fish in front of them, so as to show that his resurrection was a resurrection of the body, not of a vision, not of a phantasma. But visions sound so spiritualised the other day. There I'd been fasting for three weeks and I had this incredible vision. I'd been out in the desert and suddenly, well from there on in, you can say anything, can't you? And you've got people's attention. But of course if you go out in the desert and fast for three weeks, I guarantee you will have visions. 
the first week it'll be visions of all those Margaret Fulton cookbooks. <laughs> the second, third and fourth week they just move into weirder and weirder religious sensations. And if the reason you've gone out in the desert is some kind of religious viewpoint, then you're bound to have religious visions. It's inevitable. It's just the character of what you're doing to your brain. It doesn't tell you anything about reality. It just tells you something about visions. It sounds so spiritual, but it's puffed up without nonsense. We're puffed up with just nonsense. It makes you feel so powerful and so religious and it makes everybody else around about you feel second class and inadequate. And that's part of the captivity that we can be seduced into. And so with all these is this asceticism that eating and drinking should be denied, that physical pleasure should be denied, that spirituality comes from being non-material, but Christ is the Lord of creation. He is the one. All that you are doing is moving further away from Christ, who is the head of creation, as well as of the new creation. Well, enough. It's all about a new legalism. We know that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Some of us may not know that here and we need to find out about it. But assuming that we know that, then we know that we're not saved by faith plus works. Over and over again, the epistle to Romans, Galatians, drums home this idea that it's by faith in Jesus Christ and not works. Nor is it faith in Jesus Christ Plus works. It's just Jesus Christ who has saved us. And most Christians have got that clear. But the devil comes with other guises. Sometimes it's the old law of saying, yes, yes, you don't have to keep all the law. We know you're not saved by law, but you really do have to keep the Sabbath law. I mean, that is one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? That's not like all the rest. And suddenly you start to quaver here and say, well, now where does this fit in? Well, they say, well, what about your food laws? There's lots of things you're supposed to eat and not eat in the Old Testament. Why are you eating them now? And you forget that Jesus declared all food clean. You say, well, maybe that's not right. More commonly, though, it's the new legalism that you've got to have experiences. You've got to have fastings and feastings and visions and celebrations and religious practices. So they say, yes, you're a Christian, we're Christians, but you're not doing it right. That's why you're having trouble in your spiritual life. You are having trouble, aren't you? Are you really able to pray every day, clean, filled with the joy and delight of prayer? You out sharing the gospel day after day with joy in your heart? Do you find Bible reading just fills your life with pleasure and excitement so that you can't put it down? No, you see, you're not really having the full spiritual life, are you? If you come and do what we tell you, then you can have all these things as well. Well, you're a godless coot if you're not conned a little bit, aren't you? And who doesn't want to have quiet times that are endlessly magnificent? Who doesn't want to be able to share the gospel effortlessly and easily with joy all the time? I mean, everyone wants that kind of thing and if this is the mechanism to get it, then you know it's wrong. It's the old con. It's the gospel plus con. Whatever it may be, their visions, be they rules, be they judgments, be they what you eat or where you go to church, be which day it is or which day it isn't or any of the other thing, it's a con because you can't get closer to God than being in Christ. Not unless you think Christ is less than God or that he hasn't brought you there. You see, to think that you need anything in addition to Christ means that Christ isn't the fullness of deity or that you haven't come to fullness in him. 
And so this new legalism. Christ is Lord. Just as you received him is how you're to continue in him. The Lord who saves you. Grow and develop in him. Well, before I ask you my two questions about the first step and the second step, do you want to ask your questions and make your comments? I suspect this is a longer question time than, than usual and uh, I can see that that is going to be the case already. So therefore, the, quest, the answers will be short and brief and I hope they won't be too rude. We'll start with Alistair. Isn't it? Where does fasting fit in? Is it a religious activity? Nowhere in the New Testament are we told that we are to fast. The Old Testament has fasting laws which Jesus practised and taught his disciples about. Not that they should practise them, but when they do practise them, this is the way in which they're to do it. But indeed, the New Testament, I think, teaches us that we are the people of the feast, not the people of the fast, because we have the Lord with us, because we have come to the new age. I wouldn't have thought fasting was the normal characteristic of the Christian lifestyle, rather than feasting and rejoicing is the characteristic of the Christian lifestyle. Where we do fast... It's because we haven't got time to cook the meal, we're so keen to pray. Or where we're so ridden with the repentance of the guilt of our sinfulness that we just don't feel like eating. Or we're following the instruction of Isaiah, and I've forgotten the chapter number, someone can yell it out for me, 58, which tells us not to fast about food, but to fast about sin. Any twit can give up eating ice cream. Try and give up lying. Anyone can give up milkshakes. Try and give up greed. The fast of sin, that's the one that Christians should try if we're going to go for one. If someone wishes to fast, they want to knock off eating for a day or two, good luck to them. But when they do, don't tell anybody about it. Don't make a big thing of it and make sure you don't think you're any closer to God because you've done it. I understand if you fast for about three months, you'll get to meet God. (laughs) Now we're moving down here. Yes, Bill. Yeah, Bill, thanks for that. Very valuable corrective. See, if everything is in Christ, sounds like you sit back and do nothing. Christ's going to do it all for me. I don't have to read my Bible, don't have to go to church, don't have to, don't have to, don't have to. I just sit back and he does the lot. I don't do a thing from here on in. Well, I'm glad we bring that corrective in because we haven't covered the other side of it. That's next week. But some of you mightn't be back next week because you thought Christ was doing it all. <laughs> no, no, we've got to go on. We've got to continue. We've got to be built up and we've got to be rooted. We've got to, we've got to overflow with thankfulness. We've got to go on, but we go on in Christ, not away from Christ. Now, tonight we've been talking about not being taken captive away from Christ. Next week we talk about how we go on in Christ. So make sure you're here for next exciting episode, but we'll answer a few more questions. Yes. Thank you, Sandy. Very helpful. Again, another helpful question for us. People who tell us the gospel plus will always try and argue that the plus is really part of being in Christ. How do you know when it is not being part of in Christ but is actually being in addition to Christ? 
That's right, the subtlety of it becomes very great at points because they say, yeah, Christ and here is Christ and they then expand Christ out. Well, we've got to keep reading the word of God to see what things are in Christ and what things are not in Christ. That's crucial to be doing. Otherwise, we can get easily deceived at this point. That's hard work reading the Bible. I find it a terrible bore at times and a great struggle. Uh, Monday morning can be an agony as I face up to another week of reading the Bible. Oh, most people are like that. Some of us have just got perverted minds or have got spiritually uh, helped by God somehow to overcome the difficulties. It's hard work, but we've got to keep at it. Because as you come to read the Bible, you learn certain things. Like, for example, I always tend to think that people who pray for long periods of time must be very godly. But when I read the Bible, I read the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus says that it's the pagans who pray for long periods of time. It's the pagans who think they're godly and they're close to God in prayer because of the length of their prayers. That's a pagan way of thinking. And so, you see, I read, you know, John Wesley spent four hours in prayer every morning. And I think, boy, I don't even pray every morning. And when I do, I don't even pray for four minutes every morning. Hey, four hours, no wonder the whole of England was converted under him and no wonder Australia hasn't been converted since I've been preaching. It's all got to do with his four hours. So tomorrow morning I'm setting the alarm at three o'clock <laughs> so that I can fit in these four hours before the kids arise and all that kind of thing. You see, I sleep through it, of course. It never lasts very long. But you don't get closer to God by praying for four hours. See, Jesus has already spared me of that because it's already been spelled out that that's not Christ. The length of the time of prayer is an irrelevance. It's whether you come to God on the name of Jesus Christ, which I do believe Mr Wesley did, or whether you come in your own name or in the pride of your own length of prayer. They're the kinds of things that really matter. The length itself is inconsequential. Now, I don't know that unless I keep reading the scriptures all the time. That's the problem. But here, some of these obvious ones are being spelt out for us. Rules and regulations about food. Rules and regulations about circumcision. The importance of circumcision or not being circumcised. Rules and regulations about feasts and festivities, of fast days, of Sabbath days. Right? Rules and regulations about worship, angel worship, spiritual worship, ascetic worship. None of those. They're all additions. So these ones have been already set out for us. Unfortunately, they'll always come with you with a newfangled one that you haven't heard of yet. And when that happens, you've got to come back into the Bible. Right? I suppose the quick litmus test for you all the time is to say to yourself, how does what they're adding on or they're talking about here, really, can I find that really in the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus? Or is it something that is outside of? Take the thief on the cross. He is one of my best litmus tests. Wasn't baptised, wasn't confirmed, never went to the Lord's Supper, most likely was circumcised, most likely Jewish, but didn't come to church on a Saturday or a Sunday, not after his conversion. And yet he's one man that we know of a certainty went to heaven. Now, I still may want to go to church on a Sunday. I still may want to get baptised. I still may want to get confirmed. I still may want to take the Lord's Supper. All kinds of things I may want to do. But none of those could have been central to getting to heaven. Otherwise, Jesus would have had to kind of get across from one cross to the other cross and give him a wafer. 
unleavened, of course. Obviously it was not essential because the man got to heaven without it. So I've used him as a little bit of a litmus test over the years too. I suppose you can always think that someone was down there with a hose kind of immersing him with baptism en route and full immersion. Well, th- thank you for your comment, brother. Praise God, I'm glad you've been immersed. Uh, about two weeks' time, we're going to hold a baptism service down at the University of Pearl, New South Wales University. We're going to be immersing some other people too. I'm not against baptism, if that's what you're in hearing me say. I'm not against it. But I am against it if you think it's essential for salvation, which you don't think. And so we're in agreement at that point. But I'm glad for the comment because I don't want to be misunderstood at this point. Right? I'm not against baptism, but I am against it as an essential for salvation. Heading down that aisle, yes? Yes, where you go. Oh, you! Do I think that God uses courses like, you know, all roads lead to God to, to actually bring people back to him from time to time? Yes. I think God can and most likely has done that and I know he can because he's a sovereign Lord of all things. I know, I know a couple of people who have been converted, genuinely converted, by, uh, by people who have gone door to door talking about religion called Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, through the Jehovah's Witnesses calling on their door and asking them questions about the Bible, they've got studying the Bible and as a result of studying the Bible got converted and never became Jehovah's Witnesses but Christians. So God can use them. I know that because... In the Old Testament, God uses Balaam's ass to speak his word. And that he continues to use asses is still part and parcel of the process. It just doesn't worry me particularly, you see. God can use anything. If he can get Balaam's ass to speak, why, there's even a chance he could use me. Even a chance he could use you. And he can even use people who are in opposition to him. Right? So yes, he can use those things. That doesn't mean that in any mean, any matter of mean, that because I believe that God can use Balaam's ass, that therefore I'm going to go into donkey farming. I have to raise up lots of asses, you see, so that God can evangelise the world. Likewise, because God can use general philosophy courses of God, does it mean that I'm going to promote that lots of people go and do those because they're going to find God? That's like feeding asses. Down the back of that row there was one that I saw. Yes, thank you. To what extent then, the question comes along, to what extent should we be following the conscience? You've got salvation in faith, in Christ. Now, is, is conscience a plus, Christ plus conscience, or is conscience part of living in Christ? That's that kind of question, isn't it? Yes, the scripture teaches us that we should follow our conscience. That is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
Is that right, those who have been on the house party recently? It's in 1 Corinthians 8, isn't it, we should be following our conscience? No? I'm looking for some confirmation here and I don't mean an Episcopal one. I'm sure it's there somewhere that we should be following our conscience. Let only that each one wants to do follow his conscience. Isn't that right? And there's also Philetus and Hymenus in 1 Timothy who have made a shipwreck of their conscience. So I'm sure we should be following our conscience. However, we must also be educating our conscience. That is, my conscience can give out false signals. My conscience, the, the things I liken it to today is the computer. It gives out the information that I have programmed it to give out. If I program it to give out immorality, it will give out immorality. If I program it to give out godliness, it will give out godliness. Now, one of the problems is that people wrongly program their conscience and then say, well, I'm just following my conscience. Now, we've got to follow our conscience, yes, but we must educate it rightly. So, any number of people you see, they want to say to me things like, well, I'm going to continue going out with him and her who are not Christian because I don't have a bad conscience about it. I feel it's all right. Well, all they're doing is telling me that their conscience is ill-taught. What we need to go back is the word of God and talk about the holiness of God's people and the purity of God's people. Just because my conscience feels right doesn't mean that what I'm doing is right. What I'm doing still could be wrong. Now, I've got to obey my conscience and therefore it's very important that I educate my conscience so that it is in accordance with Christ. My conscience must be in Christ. Otherwise my conscience will then become something that's additional to Christ. So I've got to get my conscience back into being in Christ so that I can follow my conscience in Christ. Michael? I said something about being cold. Occult, occult, yes. The occult is about worshipping of Satan and therefore is inappropriate for those who want to worship Christ and God. No questions over this corner, no comments. Last two here and then we'll quit. Sorry, friends back there. Catch me at supper. How can I convince people that all roads lead to God that they don't? Well, there's none so blind as those who will not see. In the end, you can never convince anybody of anything they don't want to be convinced of. I tend to try and go back into that absolute thing of did Jesus die and to raise the question of contradiction. However, if they are people who are um, existentialists or some form of Buddhists, they don't mind contradiction. If the earth's flat to you, it's flat to you. If it's round, it's round to me. Right? And they're in fantasy land. Now, at that point, I find a quick slap across the face or a kick in the crutch will <laughs> teach them that relativism is a great nonsense. You see, you can't reason with a person like that because they've just departed from the land of reason. Right? And they're saying now, well, everything is just what you perceive. So I say, well, perceive this. And when they perceive it, I say, what did you perceive? <laughs> That's different to what I perceived. Would you like a similar perception again? And that's the kind of way that sometimes knocks the brains back into function. 
it's helpful to make sure the person is smaller than you <laughs> when discussing this point. But apart from them, those who are still in the land of the reasoning, then you can discuss about the contradiction of Jesus did or didn't die. He did or didn't rise. What about the meat strangled and the blood? That is a very nice obscure question, brother, from Acts chapter 15. And uh, what is the place? You see, in, uh, in the uh, Judaizer question in Acts chapter 14 and 15, the question came as to how much of the Old Testament law did the Gentiles have to observe, to which three things were required of them, that they refrain from meat that had been uh, strangled with its blood, they'd refrain from blood, from meat strangled and from and that they went out doing good, giving to the poor. I think they're the three things that are listed there in Acts 15. And that's the reference you're making to, isn't it? And you see, those things are actually come from prior to the law. They, they come out of, out of Noah's covenant, not out of Abraham's covenant. And that is why they are alluded to back there. However, that's a bigger question than I'm going to cope with in the last question of the evening, so I'd commend you to the tape library, which has some, a tape on Acts 15 in which we'll, we can deal with that at greater length there. Well then, let me ask you my two questions, you see. Have you taken the first step? The first step is to receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Have you taken that? Because if you haven't taken that one, a lot of what we've been saying tonight is a bit off the mark from where you're at, isn't it? Because you, you're not in danger of falling back into captivity. You are in captivity. You're already there. If you haven't received Christ Jesus as Lord, you haven't been liberated yet from the devil's deceits. You haven't yet come into the presence of God. You do not yet be part of being the family of God. And you can be because of who Jesus is and what he has done. He has come just for you. Now, we haven't gone much on that tonight. We often do and frequently do here. And I hope you'll come back and you'll find out more about that. In the meantime, come and talk to us about it. Talk to a Christian friend about it. Get one of the good Christian books. There's a lovely book called A Fresh Start up on the stall. And I encourage you, that's a good one, if you want to take a first step, is to look at a fresh start. Because until you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, you go on living in the lie. But if you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, I want to ask you the next question. Have you yet taken the second step? Well, don't. There is no second step. That's the problem. The first step is the great step. Go on in the first step. We are not two-step people. We are one-step people. Christ Jesus is Lord. Live under his lordship. Go on in the kingdom of the Christ. Go on with Jesus. Don't go anywhere else because we've got it all. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for your great gift of your Son and we thank you that in him we can meet you. We who are sinners have been brought right with you. We who are your creatures have become your family. And we praise you for him. And pray, Father, for those amongst us who do not yet know him and through him you, that they might take that great first step we pray for those of us who do know you that we may not be made captive again by adding to Jesus or by being dissatisfied in him.
And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.